0: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week, Claire Fuller on her novel Unsettled Ground, which since we recorded has been shortlisted for the 2021 Women's Prize. Claire Fuller gained a degree in sculpture from Winchester School of Art, but went on to have a long career in marketing and didn't start writing until she was 40. She has written three previous novels, Our Endless Numbered Days, which won the Desmond Elliott Prize, Swimming Lessons, which was shortlisted for the RSL Encore Award, and Bitter Orange. She has an MA in creative and critical writing from the University of Winchester. And Claire's latest book, which we're going to be talking about today, Unsettled Ground, has recently been long listed for the 2021 Women's Prize. Claire, welcome to Little Atoms.
2: Thank you for having me. Nice to be here.
1: Tell me, first of all, how you would describe Unsettled Ground.
2: I would say it's the story of 51-year-old twins, Jeannie and Julius, who still live with their mother in rural isolation and poverty in Wiltshire. And the book opens and their mother dies. I, it's not really a spoiler because it is right at the beginning. So their mother dies at the very start of the novel and Jeannie and Julius, who have lived a very sheltered life, very isolated, very away from the world, are suddenly... Cast out and have to interact with it in all sorts of ways that they have never anticipated, and it doesn't always go well.
1: <laughs> <That's> very true. <laughs> um, so, where did the where did the sort of seed for this book come from? Then
2: it came from a particular place. So uh, my son took me there, and he knows that I like weird places. So he discovered in the woods in Hampshire near where I live a caravan vandalised and just kind of falling apart. Its windows had been smashed. Its door was hanging off. Anyway, he took me there and it was a really atmospheric place. Somebody had been living there once upon a time and some of their belongings were still left behind, you know, an old cassette tape and a pair of shoes and some bedding. And it was all very smelly and quite a sad place. But it just made me start thinking who would have lived there? What would have taken them there and why? Because it was quite a long way from any road. There wasn't even a track to it and a long way from any village and then what would have taken them away from that place so what was their life like afterwards assuming they went there because they were at a low point did they carry on falling or did their life get better from that point onwards so that's really where it started.
1: These are people that we don't often see in fiction. First of all, I guess just the rural poor, but also I guess the fact that they're middle-aged as well. There's a pair of 51-year-olds as well. So in both cases, again, this is these are people that are often not written about. So was that at the forefront of your mind when you started it?
2: Not really, because I don't plan. I knew that I wanted to write about an older woman and I had intended her genie to be even older than 51, but I don't know, for various reasons that didn't work out. So she's 51. But I don't plan like that. So it's not like I had some themes or some things which I felt were unwritten about before I started. But when I did start and started to realise who these people were, how they were living, I then did try and find fiction about kind of late middle-aged rural people living in poverty. and, And actually... Certainly in the UK for, or for English characters and English set novels, I found it really difficult to find any. It seems to be a big genre in America and I love lots of that kind of fiction, but I found it very difficult to find any here. And so that obviously did intrigue me why they haven't really been written about.
1: Tell us then something about who Jeannie and Julius are when we first meet them in the novel.
2: So, as I said, they're twins, and they're born 23 hours apart, so Jeannie arrives unexpectedly. They weren't expecting twins, and she's delivered, in fact, by her father after the midwife has gone home. And their lives, as I said, are very insular. They more or less stick to home. Jeannie gardens with her mother. She has a heart condition, so she has missed a lot of school, and she is turns out really to be semi-literate when we meet her. Julius does leave the home for various reasons to do odd jobs for people. They're very kind of cash in hand type people. They don't have bank accounts. They don't have technology really at home. Julius has a mobile phone because he needs that for his work, but that's it. They haven't got a computer. They haven't got access to the internet. They haven't got transport, but they've been relatively content living at home with their mother, Dot. Their father dies when they're 12, and that does kind of upset the balance of everything. But they still carry on living with their mother, and then we meet them age 51 when, as I say, Dot dies and everything changes. But up to that point, I think Julius has been the more outgoing of the two. So he's had a few relationships, if you can call them that, even kind of one-night stands. Junie hasn't even had that, so he has really stayed very much at home, and, and that's really what she's been happy with. But I think they've been happy because they've not known anything else, rather than this is the perfect life for them. And
1: honestly, thinking particularly of, of Jean here, I wanted you to talk about writing a character from the perspective of As you said, that you know, it's not just that they're like poor and isolated, but she is basically borderline illiterate. So, writing a character from this perspective, particularly as you've said, not connected to but surrounded by the modern world obviously, you know, nowadays, lots of things that people in her position do, whether that's looking for jobs or you know, paying bills or whatever you would need some form of technology to do those things.
2: Yeah, it was really difficult and I kept forgetting what she was not able to do as I was writing and well first of all I felt that a character in her position lacks agency. It was very it was almost like I was writing from a child's point of view and in fact some people have described this almost as a coming of age novel because these adults are learning things afresh but she lacks agency in that things happen to her rather than Her controlling the novel. And normally, when you write a protagonist, they do control it. They decide things. But stuff happens to Jeannie really until the very end of the novel when she is more in control and and has learned that. So, that first of all was really difficult to write because as a reader, I know you kind of want your main character to be in control and to be the driving force of the novel for what they want. How are they going to achieve it? It's about their struggle to achieve it. And I had to kind of change that dynamic and, and be careful that she doesn't, she didn't become a caricature or a poor person, whatever that might be. And then the other thing of her being semi-literate, because writing and reading are, are so fundamental to me and obviously to what I do as a living, But I would kept, kept putting her in situations where I would have a go and do something. And then I'd suddenly realised, oh, she can't do that because she, yeah, she can't read it. So what what is she going to do? So I, for instance, I wanted her to go and get a job. I felt she needed to try to do this. So she doesn't have access to the internet. There's no library nearby. All Nearly all jobs are online, aren't they, these days? So, so I decided, well, I'll send her to the news agents in the village and she can look at the cards in the window. And I got her to the newsagents and then I suddenly realised she can't even read the cards, can she? And so I had, she creates a kind of workaround and that was really also very illuminating because... I had to create this for Jeannie, a way of solving her problem of how to get a job and how to read these cards in the news agent's window. And then I suddenly realized it was like a door opening, that that is how she must live her life. She tries to hide the fact that she can't read or write. So she has all these little schemes and tricks so that she thinks that people aren't aware of it. And I think someone in that position must have to do that the whole time. She's an amazing character,
1: but like a lot of the times I found myself really frustrated with her, like both of them, I guess, but Jeannie more so in a lot of ways. They make the wrong decision after the wrong decision or, you know, what seems like the wrong decision. They're both incredibly stubborn in lots of ways. But as you said, on the other hand, are also just very easily pushed around by people, bullied and... And it's, it's absolutely fascinating to the extent that I love this book. I was absolutely riveted by it and just wanted to know very much what happened. But at the same time, I was like, I think I just wanted to give her a shake.
2: <laughs> Me too. But I think, you know, if you imagine a 12-year-old in that situation mm. who has no knowledge of the outside world, doesn't really understand how other people work and how they might be interacting takes everybody at face value that everybody is going to be a good guy and out to help them. She just doesn't understand that. So she does make the wrong decision all the time. But I think that's just a reflection of her naivety. And I think it is it is frustrating, but I don't know, it just felt like that is that was what needed to happen. That is the kind of person she was until she begins to learn that not to trust everybody. Unfortunately, you can't trust everybody.
1: But they do have, you say, you know, trust everybody, but they also have this sort of inbuilt distrust of anybody at all that's in any form of authority, don't they? That's
2: true. Dot has, their mother has taught them not to take help from anybody and especially anyone in authority. If they offer any kind of assistance, they're going to ask for it back triple fold. So you just you don't let anyone like that into your house. You don't interact with authority as much as you are able. I mean, Jeannie has to go to the registry office and register her mother's death. She has no way around that, but that is incredibly difficult for her. And then in fact, they decide to bury their mother in the garden because they just don't want anyone to come around and mess with them.
0: Ready to pop the question?
1: You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Claire Fuller and we're talking about her novel Unsettled Ground. And Claire, I want to talk about the cottage itself and the garden for a bit. And you mentioned in the first half that, you know, when you were doing research of this book, that it didn't seem that there were many books about these sort of people in the UK, particularly. And The book that I was most reminded of when I was reading it was um, Melissa Harrison's All Among the Barley, which is is a book from a couple of years ago that I really loved, that was about the rural poor in Suffolk, but between the walls. And yet they felt so similar in terms of the situation that Jeannie and Julius were living in here because of the timelessness of living in a cottage garden. But also because both yourself and Melissa write so brilliantly about nature and about the garden and about the sort of surrounding countryside. But describe for us, first of all, the cottage that when we begin the book, Jeannie and Julius are living in.
2: Mm. Well, first of all, I want to say that I, I love that book too. Yeah, her, her writing is, is an inspiration for mine, but obviously it's set at a completely different time, but it's beautiful writing. So Jeannie and Julius live in a thatched cottage at the end of a lane past the farm on the outskirts of a village in Wiltshire and cottage that's been knocked together by their father when he was alive so um, it still really is two cottages it just you can access one from the other inside and it has only one front door and it so that it looks a bit kind of lopsided from the outside but when I was writing it I was going house hunting with my best friend and one of the cottages she went to look at in a village was very similar and had still had its two staircases at either end of the cottage still had its two fireplaces and little wooden doors at the bottom of the staircases to keep the draft out so that was really I suppose the main inspiration for the cottage but up until the age of six I lived in a thatch cottage in Oxfordshire, and it hadn't been modernised. That we still had an outside toilet, and it was yeah, it needed a lot of work. And also, when we lived there, we had we had a big garden, and my father had a big vegetable patch. It wasn't really completely like I imagined Jeannie's vegetable patch to be. I mean, it's much bigger than a vegetable patch. It's a half an acre, or an acre of land, and they grow all sorts of vegetables there. Her and her mother Dot, when she was alive, which they sell to the local deli in the village. A man has come down from London and has set up this fancy deli and then they put their vegetables on a a table at the end of the lane, the dodgy ones, the wonky ones, for people to take and to leave a little bit of money. So they survived like that with a polytunnel and a greenhouse and that was actually one of the few things that I had to do very little research about because I have been in a very amateur way a gardener in my time and owned several allotments and designed lots of gardens that I've lived in and grown vegetables. So that all came quite naturally to me.
1: Um you mentioned in, in the first half about how you don't you don't plan your novels. And so I wanted to talk about how this story came together then if you didn't plan it out in advance.
2: I knew about the caravan and I knew about Jeannie and in order to work out what had taken her to the caravan I went back in time and write about her living in this cottage with her mother and in fact then I decided no I need to know more about Jeannie if she's still living with her mother so actually the book opens with Dot and Dot's point of view just for a chapter and really that is kind of that is how I write. That's as much planning as I do. So I start writing a scene and things happen in it and there are some consequences from that. So if if Dot dies in the first chapter and she's living with her 51-year-old children, what do they do? And then I can write the next scene. And as I write, I am discovering things about the way they live and the kinds of people they are. And it's not until i maybe halfway through two thirds of the way through that I can start to see the end and what might be coming and the options for the ending are all kind of playing in my mind it takes me about a year and a half to write what I might call the first draft even though I am editing as I go quite a lot it's not just to just kind of get it down on paper it's very slow process for me to write that first draft. And to to refine as I go, to understand more about Genie and their situation and the people they interact with. And then when I, after that year and a half, when I get to the end of the first draft, then I spend six months or more editing and revising and layering in stuff and understanding where the gaps are and just making sure that every single word is the right word in the right place.
1: There are secrets at the center of this family. And so on one level, the book reads like a mystery, in that, you know, there are secrets to be unfolded gradually as we go and revelations that are made. But and I'll tread a bit carefully here because if I get if I get this wrong, it's a bit awkward. But those secrets are pretty obvious a lot of the times. But of course, the people that don't know what they are. Our genie and genius.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It was completely written like that. So the clues for what's going on are in the first chapter and they are meant to be very obvious clues. So for me, the revelations... I hope that readers will see that and will understand what's going on and see it coming. So the revelations and the reveals of the secrets are not for the sake of the reader. The reader is supposed to see those coming and feel the tension between I know what's coming and Jeannie doesn't, she just doesn't have any clue at all. And so hopefully that's what draws the reader in, rather than it being a straightforward mystery. It's, Certainly not meant to
1: be that at all. There's a lot of music throughout the book. The family are all a little folk family and one particular song, Polly Vaughan, is repeated throughout the book which people who, if it's not giving too much away, people who are familiar with the story of that song might see it replicated in the actual plot of the story in some respects. But the Well, not the family because obviously Dot is dead by then. But but Julius and and Jeannie play a little gig in a pub. You can imagine. In fact, there is supposed to be a guy coming to see it. But you could imagine that you know Rayford Williams or someone wandering in and getting a pint of mild and collecting the songs that they're singing. Tell me something about using folk music in the
2: story. It was really because I work out a playlist before I. well, uh, around the time that I'm starting to write the novel, uh, music that I can listen to. And I've done that for all four books. And with Unsettled Ground, it actually took me much longer. And normally I find a musician or or a band or, uh, you know, uh, some of their music, an album or else all of their music. And I listen to that on repeat for the time that I'm writing. So for two years But with Unsettled Ground, it took me a long time, as I said, and I really only found two pieces of music. So one was Polly Vaughan and the version that um, Tia Blake sings, which you can hear on YouTube. And then also another song called We Roamed Through the Garden, which my um, son, who's a musician, Henry Ayling, wrote. And some of the lyrics are also in Unsettled Ground. And I think it's, I didn't plan that they should be, folk musicians but I think that's because of the kind of music I was listening to and the kinds of people they were I kind of gave them that and I gave them that Jeannie especially for several reasons firstly that it is quite a bleak book it is quite sad and I needed some joy Jeannie needed some joy and I needed some joy while I was writing it and I think the reader probably needs some joy and I I hope that comes through the music but also because of her lack of education, because she has struggled through the education traditional education system. It hasn't served her well. She hasn't fitted in very well. She can't read or write, as we've talked about. I wanted to show that she was still capable of of great learning and great skills. So she gets that partly through the gardening, perhaps, but also through the music. And she is such a proficient guitarist. Such a superb guitarist and singer that when she plays and when she sings, people stop and listen and people comment and people say she should be doing more with this. And so there's also, I think, that music provides a glimmer of hope, I I think, at, at the end of the novel for Jeannie, because, you know, her, things haven't turned out as she planned, but music is a possibility for taking her forward.
1: One more thing before we finish, and I'll get you to read a bit of the book, if you would. Tell me about what it means for you that the book has been long-listed for the Women's Prize.
2: Oh, it's yeah, that is a wonderful thing because I've been a reader for many years. I think in your introduction, you said I didn't start writing until I was 40, but before that, I was a huge reader and still am a huge reader. And so I followed the Women's Prize and the Baileys, as it was called in the Orange Prize before that. And in fact, after I became published I did some library events around the um, women's prize so when the winner was announced I was involved in an evening in a library where we had read all the short and discussed them live with the audience and then the winner was announced and we all celebrated together so it feels like I have been involved with it for quite a while even though you know none of my previous books were long listed so it's it's an absolute pleasure that Unsettled Ground has been, and amongst so many other great books.
1: To finishes off, can I get you to read this a bit?
2: So I'm going to read. From it's about a third of the way through, and Jeannie and Julius have just learnt that the rent is overdue on their cottage, and their landlords, the Rawsons, say that it's owed, even though they believe they could live their rent free. And because they don't have any money, they've decided to bury their mother in the garden without telling anyone. So, this is from um, Julius's point of view. In the shop, Julius dithers, he's low on tobacco and rolling papers, and he wants no needs, a pint in the pub. What to do with the money from the guttering job? If he wants to get any work, he'll need credit for his mobile phone. He buys £10 worth and some tobacco. In the pub, he plugs his mobile in to charge. He sits at the bar next to Jenks, sips at a pint of bitter to make it last, and rolls a thin cigarette. Heard about your mum, Jenks scrawny man whom Julius has rarely seen out of the public bar of the plough tips his glass towards his mouth and Julius sees his top lip reach out to the beer like a snail feeling its way. What a bummer, Jenks says when he's swallowed. Yep, Julius says licking his cigarette paper, sticking it down. Thanks. He waves the cigarette at Jenks and goes out the back to smoke. He has a blister on his palm from digging and he rubs the bubble of it across his lips, feeling the fluid move beneath the skin. He considers if there's a legal requirement for the depth of a grave. He wonders again whether they're allowed to do what they're doing. Sod it. He doesn't care if they aren't. He's taken off the turf and has gone down a spade's depth, which isn't enough. Won't be enough for Jeannie and would be an utter cock-up if the foxes started digging or moored. He rubs the bristles along his jaw, smokes his cigarette, thinks about what the Rawsons say is owing. Again, sees Rawson shout nothing up the stairs to his wife, remembers the contents of the envelopes in his coat pocket. When he's back at the bar and another ten minutes have passed, Jenks says, you've got a text? And that bit of totty who lives over the fish and chip shop, something about a boiler. Bloody hell, Jenks, read everything, why don't you? Shall I bring in my diary next time? Jenks smirks and after checking his phone Julius finishes off the rest of his beer in one open throated gulp. Boilers aren't his specialism. He doesn't really have a specialism and he doesn't have his tall rucksack with him but he wheels his bike through the village to Shelley Swift's. She's wearing a leopard print top and a denim skirt when she answers the door and lilac lipstick that she surely doesn't put on for work. Bloody boiler. There's no hot water, she says, as he follows her up the stairs. The boiler is on a wall in the kitchen, and as soon as he inspects the hole in the cover, he sees that the pilot light has gone out. He pushes two buttons, the gas ignites, and a tiny blue flame shows through the hole, and they hear the boiler kick in. You're amazing, Shelley Swift says, and then she turns. She doesn't move back. Her nose and mouth are out of focus, but her eyes... Lashes clotted with makeup and hazel irises with the circumference of a deeper brow. Catch him and hold him. He wants to kiss her but feels he is too tall, too stooped, all elbows and knees. He is unused to an encounter like this, out of practice. Can I use your toilet, he says. And she laughs that husky laugh and lets him go. In the bathroom under the window is a shelf unit crammed with books. He pulls one out. Just like her mother, the title reads in raised silver letters. Behind the words is a close-up of some scrubby bushes and a patch of bare soil. Just visible in the earth is a woman's ear with an earring through the hole. He shoves the book back. On the landing at the top of her stairs, as he is saying that she should text him if anything else goes wrong, Shelley Swift kisses him, her mouth slightly open, her tongue touching his lips, and he's aware of the waxiness of her lipstick. He doesn't exactly kiss her in return, too shocked by the feel and the taste of her. When they pull apart, he laughs once more and he almost runs down the stairs and out through the door. All the way home, he rides his bike without holding on, as though he were 13 again, using his knees to steer so that he can hold his fingers to his nose and smell the lemony scent of Shelley Swift's
1: bathroom soap. So I've been talking to Claire Fuller. We've been talking about her novel Unsettled Ground, which is out in the UK from Penguin Fig Tree. Claire, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. Thank you very much for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up and hosted by ACAST. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening.
0: Hold up. What was that?